Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Brian Asinja is the chairman and CEO of the Pearl Dream, Inc. He's an author, advisor, and asset manager. Uh, he's the author of The Last Digital Frontier and Cashless Society 101, former Wall Street analyst at the New York Stock Exchange, over 10 years enterprise software architecture and executive strategy uh, experience. He's a growth advisor to startups, accelerators, governments, and public and private institutions. He's a speaker, a workshop facilitator for institutions and individuals. Brian is here. I mean, he's got this sort of expertise and, and view on cashless society and a bunch of stuff like that, but he's also done and explored various types of deals. We're going to be talking about things like special purpose vehicles and uh, cash for equity and, you know, and things like uh, services for equity and things like that. Brian, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me on, Corey. So listen, before we get into all the amazing stuff that you're, uh, that you're doing now and all this deal stuff and everything else we're going to talk about, I want to take you sure, back sure. to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Uh, because... I'm guessing, I don't know, would you have even known what the concept of cashless society is or being involved in financial <laughs> matters or wow. consulting or anything like that? Yeah, way to take me back. So eight <laughs> years, geez. Eight years, I might say I was busy enjoying learning to read. I did love reading about, uh, I, and actually uh, for the, a little background for, for the listeners, uh, I, I grew up in Uganda and so I came to the U.S. when I was 18 for high school and so. Uh, at eight years old, I definitely was enjoying some kind of detective stories and Reader's <laughs> Digest journals <laughs> on the best literature out in the world. But I did, I must say, like, regardless of whether or not, you know, what I thought of cashless society at that time, I did enjoy spy stories, uh, you know, little nuggets about the Cold War and, and, and spies and the good that they did. We all know there was a lot of risk involved. Uh, I did enjoy narratives about sea voyages and, and that kind of travel. But I, I would say like the, the concept of just business yeah, or, or people coming to America and then, you know, starting with a small, maybe starting as a waiter in a restaurant. And then one day they own that restaurant and then one day they franchise it out. Yes. I mean, that whole layering and, and perhaps this is related to today's conversation about deal making. It just always seemed fascinating that maybe in one generation you could you know evolve as an individual as a family as an institution uh and maybe make a name for yourself but more importantly uh change your life or change your community so i've always perhaps been curious about business and i, and I think financial literacy or, or the conversations that you facilitate uh whether it's about deal making whether it's about the the challenges of of 
just partnerships in general. I feel like that's the thing that I now soak in because I now have access to that. But, you know, growing up, uh, that was a luxury, uh, let alone like a distant thing that you could just read about in books and go, wow, he was able to do that. <laughs> and so I'm glad you asked that question because it, it seems like a, a distant childhood, but I can still connect to it. That curiosity about business and enterprise and, and all that complexity around it, uh, I feel like it's it's been a joy kind of learning and acquiring some of that knowledge, but more importantly, putting some of it in practice, which can be scary the first time you do anything, but it gets better with time. I love it. And I, and you know, the other thing I heard in there, which I, which I love, and you can tell me if I won't, but you know, it sounds yeah. like, you know, growing up in Ghana, you know, is that immigrant success story, right? You know, that starting as a waiter and then owning the restaurant and then maybe franchising. Like, yeah. That, you know, and, and, and did you have any models or did you know people who had come from, you know, uh, where you came from uh, who, who had done that? Is that where you got that sort of you um, know, Not necessarily. Or? Yeah, not necessarily. I think, I think for, I'm from Uganda, which is more in like East Africa. I think a lot of the U.S immigrant success stories would be more from West Africa, if you think Senegal, uh, Nigeria. Um, and, and to be honest, it wasn't even until uh, 2015 that I even read about, let alone knew that there were billionaires, or African billionaires on a continent of yes. Africa doing business there, right? Again, it's just not something that celebrated or communicated or normalized. So, so I think it's not in the last decade that business has taken center stage as far as like Africa conversations. Or, uh, but I think uh, that's why I was alluding to the American immigrant experience yes. that, that success through business has always been like an American opportunity. Yes, yes. Uh, a possibility. And, and I think that as a kid, I suppose that's the only vehicle lens. Uh, and it was mostly, I suppose, stories about uh, Eastern European immigrants who had uh, sort of done that earlier. Uh, success in New York City, uh, yeah, specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no, it's it's great, and I've I've had the pleasure of uh, of spending some time in in Uganda um, uh, many years ago. Uh, but uh, so, uh, did, did you uh, just have your, did you are near uh, Kampala or in the or in the villages? Or? I was more in uh, Kasese, Uganda, which is more in the southwest, closer yeah. to the border with Congo, which uh, were very good neighbors. Uh, don't speak French yet, because <laughs> but I did learn a little in college, so I can, you know, I know my foods and and my we, as I like to say, uh, yeah. Oh, wow. uh, but it's it, it, I think travel. I think um, um, one of the things that I've, if, you know, since we're gonna somehow get there, you know, in terms of deal making, I think living on the border, I suppose just give me a window, let's call it a practical window around taxation and cross-border trade and, and, yes. and let's call it tax evasion kind of practices that come with that. People trying not to pay the border tax. And, and so I think just kind of, I mean, I think sometimes you see things, uh, but then later you learn in school the complexity of all these systems, right? right. Uh, but I think it's good enough to also kind of see a system in, in, in practice. Uh, and kind of see the participants of, of a particular economy or, or, or way of doing business. Yeah. Love it. Love it. All right. One other question looking back. What was your sure. first deal of any type? Uh, it could be when you were a kid, it could be older. Just anything that comes to mind that, you know, feels like a, an early deal. Yeah. Feels like a good deal. Um, I would say my first deal, 
I'm going to answer it in two parts. I would say for sure my first deal, like anybody, is negotiating your, your first paycheck. Like you're out of college, you're getting a real, you know, job. Maybe you're going to be locked in it for a year or two, right? Uh, just learning about that, I think, was my first sort of adult kind of deal. Because, you know, I, unlike other people, I, I suppose I've sort of been, I would say I'm much more knowledgeable than my parents, I would think. So I kind of have grown up just negotiating things on my own. Yes. But uh, so that was a nice challenge, I suppose, for other people it may not be because maybe they've had experiences or their parents might have given them more insight. But, but for me, it was almost like an adult decision of like, okay, we're doing this thing as, as, as adults. Um, I'd say the second opportunity, which is perhaps the, the right answer to the question was uh, negotiating or, or offering like a 50% ownership to my co-founder when I invited him to join me on this entrepreneurship journey. Even though at that time, he only promised me three hours a month. Okay. <laughs> that was like a lousy deal. But I, I would like to say over time it's paid off because he's put in more money than he signed up for and more time and more energy. And I, and I, I, I think partnership, to me, that's the kind of like the philosophy of like the value of something be more than uh, the, the, the present day sort of perception of, of something. So I was able to kind of understand like, hey, he's a friend I've had uh, literally for over four years since college, undergrad, freshman year. He was my college buddy mentoring me as I came in as a freshman. And so five year, four years later, I graduate. We had really developed a unique relationship that I knew, uh, I mean, I was going to lean towards business. He was more tech, uh, computer science graduate, very tech focused. I, I felt like if anybody could do something, it would be the two of us. Uh, and we kind of already had the trust and I was able to sort of bet, place some value on that trust. And, and I think it's beginning to pay off in the long term and, and we're now beginning to realize something. So perhaps that was the first deal. Oh, uh, I, I love it. Listen, I, that's that's I mean, a good deal. Yeah. You know, a business partnership for your, for your business is a hugely important deal. And, uh, you yeah. know, it's interesting some of the things you raise. I mean, it's, um, yeah, you said even though you would only put in three hours a week, you know, value brought is not only measured in time, right? Like you right. Measure, there's capital, there's connections, there's expertise. There's, there's, yeah. there's a lot of different things that you can bring that, that aren't yeah. time. And over time, a really quick anecdote is over time, since he's originally, from, he's American now, but he's originally from Nairobi, uh, Kenya, Nairobi, mm-hmm. uh, which is a neighbor to Uganda. And Kenya is really like in East Africa, it's like the business place yes. for trade in East Africa. And so we've managed to leverage that as we've grown. And I, in a way, I did have that in mindset of like, He's from there, I'm not, and we can easily navigate that 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 part of the world when we get there. Yeah. Uh, and so it's kind of like thinking ahead. But again, it was because I trusted that when those opportunities came up that he would step up and, and he's, he's really uh, been able to to do all those things that I expected from him, even though I couldn't tell him all that in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> he would have thought he was signing up for too much, right? Yeah. I love it. I love it. That's great. Yeah. So listen, we already we already talked about a deal that's important sure. to you now. Um, before we talk about some of the other things you're doing in terms of uh, on the deal side, just give people mm-hmm. a little more detail about what what your company does, who you serve. You know, what, yeah. what, what, you know, what what are the basic services uh, you provide yeah. to who? Yeah. So as a, as a company, the Paldrum Inc., uh, we so we're headquartered in New York, uh, but we also, as I mentioned, have a subsidiary in Nairobi, Kenya, and. 
We provide primarily three core services. Uh, one is uh, educational media streaming platform that we label Dream Galaxy Plus. It's essentially a mobile app, but also uh, we're trying to also enable web streaming uh, that's just going to have more culturally relevant educational media. The second, uh, so imagine long term, that could be branded content. We can have more educational uh, programmatic content uh, really around intellectual property. A lot of all these other areas, like I said, that you know, financial literacy, tech literacy, uh, these are things that often we take for granted. We use all these tools, but the mechanics, legal, uh, financial, otherwise, uh, even le- regulatory these days, if you think of the blockchain space, that go behind making these uh, innovations a success. Uh, I think it's still like a, an opaque world for most people. So we think that media and education has a huge role to play alongside innovation, hence the, the media distribution service. Uh, and as you know, media is sort of a monopolized space, so we just wanted to make a dent in the, into that. Um, the, the second service is really advisory, and that's something we uh, sort of formalized last summer. So it's sort of a new service, but again, uh, we kind of borrowed on our over 20 years joint expertise uh, from both Wall Street and, and, and other leading. Uh, my business partner used to work at the leading uh, ele- smart lights ele- uh, electronics manufacturer, mm-hmm. um, uh, Lutron Electronics. And so he basically understands digital automation and we're able to just leverage that tech background again to help organizations <laughs> navigate this new digitized automated world. Uh, and that ranges from startups to uh, accelerators, uh, we mentor through Newchip, uh, and we are now a shareholder in that, uh, uh, probably the largest online accelerator uh, for businesses globally. Um, and then uh, we also get a lot of uh, conversations from major banks, you know, management consulting firms, investment firms that really just want to understand uh, what the industry, you know, who are doing their own due diligence on the potential for certain you know, software applications or companies before they actually make an investment. So uh, I think for me, it's like that advisory space just keeps my brain active. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I also pays the bills, but, but it's like, it's the most, it's almost the most enjoyable part because I get to see what other counterparties in the market are curious about and, and, and where they're investing their time. Uh, the last piece that we just uh, piloted this year is the SPV sort of investment syndicate process. And, and this is through these vehicles, special purpose vehicles, we're now beginning to bring and, and, and connect investment to specific in farms or innovations that we uh, believe need that uh, financial support that they need. So in addition to the advisory and, and perhaps mentorship, uh, this is a way for us to also be uh, co-participators in these rounds, but also uh, begin to bring on other participants. So, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the concept of SPV and you know sure. what that is and how it works. Sure. Um, SPV actually got into it about two years ago as far as just beginning to even understand what it was. Uh, uh, and to, to give full credit, the guy that uh, really uh, was generous enough to uh, take a phone call with me and walk me through the process uh, was uh, London Lang. Uh, London leads the uh, Assure Syndicates program at Assure. Uh, they are one of the largest uh, SPV uh, managers in the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. We, however, <laughs> you know, because we are a little globally oriented <laughs> than other U.S. Uh, firms, uh, ended up picking uh, their U.K. competitor. I don't want to say competitor, maybe their industry participants yeah. uh, of a bond, uh, which, uh, 
was incorporated in the UK, but they actually just also incorporated in Delaware uh, to have that US presence. So uh, the difference between, I suppose, um, uh, Assure and, and Vabon is Vabon uh, handles international uh, investor, you know, tax reporting regulations, whereas Assure is focused on US only. Right. Um, as we know, the US is pretty has pretty strict uh, investor sort of reporting guidelines, and so. Uh, when you have more than 51% international investors, uh, they drop that requirement. And I think Vabon is able to leverage that clause that kind of allows them to say, hey, we're not going to charge you as a fundraiser a lot more money to manage that, that, that compliance section uh, if you bring in international investors, uh, because then the, the, the requirements, legal requirements, annual, annual investor sort of uh, K1 and other kind of uh, document requirements and not as mandatory. So it's almost an uh, optional disclosure requirement and not a mandatory one. Uh, whereas uh, Ashir is saying, uh, for now, I suppose they can always expand later, the purely US-focused, only US investors, so there can be no international investor participation in a particular round that they are facilitating. Uh, and again, we have good relationships with both. We believe we're going to be using both, especially when we have a deal that's only US-focused. Uh, we believe we would go with Azure because they, you know, they run some of the uh, software that's handled by um, AngelList, and we find uh, essentially it's the same technology, except they're sort of now licensing that program or or that advisory, providing that uh, compliance service for your specific round, just for your company. Uh, and again, for us, the reason we went that route rather than setting up a fund, which was always a dream, I think the VC space is undergoing a lot of changes. We're seeing a lot of companies like uh, uh, Anderson Haraway's and, and other firms really beginning to set up fund of fund structures, where rather than raising uh, X amount of dollars every five, 10 years, you know, fund one, fund two, fund three, they don't want to miss out on an opportunity to grow with a company, their portfolio companies. They often sort of feel like because a fund runs out of its, uh, you know, capital, say it's invested in six, seven companies, uh, they may not have additional balance to reinvest as a follow-up on one of their really good successes. And so often they're locked out of that success. Um, so, and for founders, founders are also looking for investors that can stay with them. Uh, through that growth journey from pre-seed to perhaps exit, M&A or IPO. And as a company, we think we also want to be there for the long ride. <laughs> and so this SPV model really allows you to fundraise specifically, uh, set up a firm to fundraise specifically for investing in one company at a time. And so you're not limited. Uh, and I think if you're doing a follow-on fund, you just sort of, you know, you can create SPV1, SPV2, but again, it's a little bit easier from a compliance perspective to move those same investors into a new bucket, rediscuss a cap table and sort of just keep them as, uh, essentially you could have 10, 20 investors listed as one entity on a cap table, which is also advantageous for founders. So it's a very unique process, uh, one that we are happy to, to be leveraging. Obviously, angel investors and, and other VCs can actually still participate in, in SPV rounds. Um, um, it's still a new concept for some of them to understand or even navigate legally or accounting wise. But uh, the beauty is they, the fund managers handle the complexity. In this case, Assure and 
have a bond act as your uh, fund management as a service kind of provider. Uh, and then we just focus on syndicating the investors and the, the founder focuses on pitching the vision. Uh, so it's really a unique um, service that that's, I think is just going to continue to grow in relevance in terms of providing standardization, but also reducing a lot of complexity uh, around fundraising as a process. You know, as a lawyer, I imagine you could understand that having the accountant, the lawyer, and the founders and the investors, or various investors all speak the same language at the same time is often just a challenge. And so uh, that's what we've found that we've minimized some of the headache involved in that process. So, you know, it's just to summarize at a simple level. So, you know, one of the differences of an SPV is that you're it's not a it's not a blind fund. It's not an open fund. You're not investing in multiple companies. It's you're raising capital for a particular investment company. in a particular company. Yeah. You know, and that is something that uh, you know it's not. I mean, it's not new, but 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 it's uh, but it's certainly in in various industries become more more popular recently. And you know, yeah. it's something that real estate investors were doing forever, right? Usually, mm, property by property, that. it was actually even more common for real estate investors to raise per deal. Than it was to raise general funds, whereas in corporate, maybe you know, yeah, now you know, it was it was a little a little the other way. But you know, but the investors know what they're what they're investing in. It's you know, they're not just betting on management's uh, ability to find deals later. And um, so, you're using these vehicles to raise funds domestically and internationally, and then to invest mm-hmm. in in what types of in what types of companies. Sure, uh, we as a company primarily focused on uh, education. Uh, healthcare and finance or fintech in particular. Yep. Um, but again, once in a while, there'll be interesting deals that come. Uh, but we do think that if when all said and done, they are likely to fit those verticals. I mean, there's a company we're evaluating that's more in the 5G space, doing sort of like uh, 5G security, like how do you measure how secure like your connectivity is around this uh, broadband connectivity uh, infrastructure. But even that, you would think that what are people going to use it for? Banking and communication. And, and so I, I think that those three buckets for us, we feel like uh, help us just be in media, sort of biotech and, and pharmaceuticals, which is a huge space, as you know, as, uh, especially since COVID. And then um, uh, fintech or global banking and financial inclusion, we believe is still, a, a, you know, an unmet uh, need uh, globally. Uh, some countries are ahead of others. And so there's still a huge opportunity, both uh, internally within specific countries, but also for cross-border financing. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Oh, yeah, I want to ask you sort of a, uh, a mindset question yeah. because, you know, one of the things, I mean, I, I've had real estate funds in the past where we raised, you know, uh, capital from other people, you know, put our own capital in, uh, other people's capital and made investments. Yeah. And I've also done some investments in other people's company, uh, you know, companies. And, you know, some people uh, would never do that because of the responsibility, right? The, the fear or the responsibility they feel for handling other people's money, right? You know, 
So, you know, it's, it's a very different position to be in to invest your own money, uh, to advise, you know, provide management consulting or advisory services for a fee. Then when right. you start raising capital from other, from other folks, you know, what was the, what was the mindset process that you guys went through and, and, and what had you feel comfortable doing that? Cause on the one hand, that could be very lucrative, uh, not only to you, but also you can build great relationships by doing well for people. Time when things go bad, you, you know, <laughs> you, you know, you got a lot of other people to answer to. Yeah. So, uh, talk to me a little bit about the mindset decision to move in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're hitting on something, which is, the more I research the VC space as it is, like you know, angel investing, as you know, it's like, uh, I mean, that's why like syndicating, it's nothing new. Syndicates right. basically are saying, you are going to invest individually anyway. Why don't you join us and we co-invest? Okay. Uh, and so there's almost like a shared thesis, shared alignment. And, and I think like the responsibility there is still on the individual investor or the individual LP or the fund manager that's coming into that syndicate round. However, they are following the leadership or the guidance or initial research of, of, of the, the person syndicate. That's, right. That's a little bit more free, uh, freeing, let's say psychologically, than let's raise $10, $100 million. And now we have to do something with it for 10 right. years. And every day for those 10 years, people are going to be asking, how's our money doing? Okay. So <laughs> from a mindset perspective, I just felt like I wasn't ready for that. Uh, that's not what I wanted to sign up for. I didn't want the next 10 years of my life be about being answerable to yes. 10 funds or 10 individuals that maybe helped me raise the 10 million, $100 million fund. And I felt like rather that time and that mental capacity is better off spent with the founders who genuinely are actually doing all the heavy lifting and need all the help they can get. So I think that the beauty of SPVs is they almost democratize that, that fund management and say, maybe the person with the deal-making capacity, the person connecting uh, great founders with capital need not be burdened with also managing the fund. Yes. Because uh, a lot of that, as you know, is more legal, legal tax uh, regulatory stuff that not every fund manager can be an expert. And anyway, they're going to have to bring in these third parties to help with that. So I think it's almost like compliance in a box. Yeah. Uh, and then we are not the fund managers. Uh, the assured of a bond would then handle the investor communications. Uh, it right. Comes right. Out so of the you're not even, it, yeah. that's the thing. When you're you're not even directly responsible. They can even ask me. They can log into the platform and at yeah. least get to know where the cup table sits. Is there another round being raised next? When is that going to be? All that communication will be in one central platform. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so I'm no longer the primary contact, if anything, for investor relations purposes. However, I'm there to provide more insight about the opportunity and why I think it's investment worthy. And so I think that really, um, one, simplifies the deal-making process from just a logistics point of view, document sourcing, um, if any offers need to be made, they're already in that system and can literally with an email, uh, even they call for capital, right? Capital calls are done through the platform. So an investor will get notified, hey, this round just opened. You said you are interested. You have 30 days to deposit, right? right? And, and the founder will know who has contributed, which investors contributed or not. So all that logistics is already taken care of out of the box, which 
it's just a time saver. It's just a time saver. Yeah, and it's it's yeah, it's an interesting point, right? On two fronts, uh, you know, one, uh, you know, when people, you know, uh, when you're running a fund, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and and you don't have anybody else involved like 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 you do on the SPV side. Yeah, I mean, a lot of you know, you're doing a lot of communications with investors. They want updates. They want to know what's going on. Maybe they want to try to have a say in stuff. You know, whatever. It's a, you know, so yeah. you don't have to deal with that. And then also, obviously, when you have an open fund, really, there's so much more betting on management because they're not making not not that obviously as the promoter of the deal, the president's bringing it to you that your credibility does play a role in the SPV. Right, right, yeah. But because yeah. it's on a specific company, they get to do, they can do their own due diligence. They can do their own, they exactly. make their own investment decision. Whereas if you're running a, a fund where a you, fund. you're going to make the decisions they're later, you up the front. only thing they're betting on is you and they're going to be looking at yeah. you. Yeah. And, and I think that's the difference. Essentially, what London told me is that you can, you can, we could have still, there's two options essentially. We could have run it, you can set up an SPV for a mini fund, sort of, you can layer on a management fee. Yes, but that generates that complexity that you're talking about. Of if I'm gonna be paying you a management fee upfront, what am I paying for? And now you have to qualify that. So by only participating in the carry and saying we will only get paid when you get paid as an investor, uh, that actually uh, just generates a little bit more transparency. Like we have skin in the game as much as you do. We may not pay the fund management fees. Yes, but that's only fair because we're bringing you the deal, right. uh, and I think that really, again, just makes the conversation a little bit easier because a lot of the funds, the investor pays, then go directly to the company and to the fund management, which, by the way, is like drastically low. I mean, it's less than a couple thousand dollars, like you know, compared to what a traditional deal, you know, as you know, it's usually ten, twenty percent of of the round. Sure. Uh, so for a million dollar round, that would have been $20,000. It's usually a fraction of that. And, and, and the founder doesn't have to pay any of that. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, now you had, uh, am I right? We had talked in the pre-call uh, about you um, looking at raising capital at some point for one of your businesses or whatever, and sure. not going forward with that. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, so I, I think where I am now is because of where I've been. Uh, when we basically were working on Dream Galaxy, which was originally Dream Africa at one point, because we were just trying to be like a mini Disney for Africa, just focused on African media. Uh, but we've since broadened that appeal to just kind of be more global media because uh, customer feedback was more like, if you're fighting exclusion, why are you trying to be exclusive <laughs> to just Africa? And by the way, who counts as African? If I'm here in the U.S. and I'm originally from Africa, my still Africa. So we felt like we were entering a very ripe sector, ripe for disruption, but we didn't want to box ourselves into a, a small sector that uh, we wanted to be, from a branding perspective, expand from there. So yeah, when we were fundraising, essentially there was some interest from, um, um, uh, I would say an angel investor, but it was affiliated with another syndicate that was, uh, I won't mention the name, just, because uh, unfortunately, the uh, individual A has since passed, and and two, uh, it's just in the past. Uh, but it's a lot, it was a learning opportunity. So, this particular individual had been to Africa. I, I used to work with the U.S. State Department, so uh, we just felt like he understood the uh, the thesis we had and what we were trying to build. Um, and we had he had in, informally been like a mentor for almost uh, six months. 
uh, where we would have these, you know, bi-weekly, monthly uh, sort of dinner meetings and really just get to share the vision and the milestones. So at, at the point of making the offer, I mean, he called, like, I think we knew that was coming. Like, hey, we're ready to, uh, to make an offer. I just wanted to call you guys first, give you a heads up. Uh, come on by on this particular date and we will, you know, finalize the document. So he had a legal firm's contacts. I mean, there was nothing that had not been shared or communicated, including uh, the terms. Um, but I think what ended up happening was we get this verbal commitment. We get this, we're waiting to just go read the actual offer in time we meet in person. Uh, when we got there, somehow the conversation changed to my lawyer looks at what I was about to offer you guys and he thinks I should pause and like, you know, re-research this. And so to me, it was like, what is that to research if we've been meeting with you for almost six months? We've re- literally opened up the business to a point where you had a front row view of mm-hmm. where we were going. Uh, we have shared what some of the challenges we had. You had ideas on how we may navigate that, which is the overall reason we're raising capital. So it actually was an opportunity that I suppose I might have overreacted. I was kind of like, oh, I just feel like sending him this email of like, don't ever talk to us again. But my team got the, you know, kind of <laughs> held me back. But we did survive. I think like a day later, a week later, we realized, you know, maybe focusing on investors shouldn't be the priority, but rather focusing on the customer. Um, and, and the revenue angle. And uh, maybe later we may raise money, maybe we may not. But we realized we had already, we were close to, you know, finishing the MVP, uh, that we could just go to market, um, grow organically from that, and, and, and just have a little bit more leverage and a little bit more traction. Uh, and that was the route we took. And, and I think that to date, like, even though I like, again, I want to help found, founders get capital, I still believe that your customer is your biggest investor. And so when you truly focus on the customer, if it's working, it's working. I mean, you could be bringing in a million, maybe you want to bring in 10 million or a billion. That, that scale, yes, can be funded, but the foundation uh, is always up to you. <laughs> yeah, the market. yeah. No, that's, a, yeah. that's a great point. It's, um, and listen, there are different types of companies in different industries. And certainly we've seen, especially in, certain tech plays or whatever that, you know, they're built in a way where they're going to raise capital before they actually have profits or even revenue right. sometimes because they, you know, they have that model where they're getting eyeballs or whatever, and then they're going to yeah, buy market share kind but, of funding. Yeah. Right. But outside of that, which is, and, and unfortunately those are the ones that get the press sometimes. So people, I think get a misimpression that is a right. very tiny percentage of the companies <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that actually get funded, right? Um, yeah. You know, most companies, uh, you know, investors want to see the ability to get a customer, a client, and get another one, and get another one, and show the ability to, to, you know, yeah. to generate revenue. And then you're right. I mean, you alluded to this as some of the best, uh, you know, and then, and then also, by the way, for the founders, you know, and you, you, I'm just teasing out some things you really said that you alluded to, sure. um, you know, the earlier you go, the, the more of the company you're going to give away, right? You know, you, you know, uh, and raising capital right. too early also. So one, you, you know, you're giving away more of the company, you're not getting higher va- evaluations. Number two, with some folks, it, it, it reduces their, their driving their discipline. I'm not saying they still don't want to win, but like, they, you know, they, they don't have they, to make they the tough decisions. They, they don't have, they have yeah. a cushion, right? You know, 
Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, when you don't have that cushion, you figure out ways to generate revenue. Um, and yeah, then, yeah. you know, and then the final thing you said, which is important is that, yeah, some of the best investing is, is that is not the companies that like they, they could go on without funding and grow at a certain rate, but, but they see the opportunity they've proven the market at some level, they see the opportunity to put, you know, gas on the fire, so to speak, fuel on the fire, exactly. but this would really, with the capital would really accelerate the yeah. growth significantly. Yeah. Yeah, and and that to that last last point around validation, right? I, I I'm mentoring other organizations that have maybe been in the market for five, six, ten years, and they go, "Hey, how do we look presentable to investors who might have this question of like, what have you been doing for ten years?" You know, and I go, "Own it." You know, you've been validating for ten years. You were where you were. If you think this is where you now need external funding to move to the next stage, just communicate what that next stage is because companies go public and then go private or private companies go public. And so like what kind of capital you attract and for what purpose, that's up to you as a founder to explain and defend that that's the right strategy you want to go with. Uh, But you should never be bullied into like, accepting a certain amount of money from a certain investor because you could always do debt, debt funding or other kind of options. And I think uh, it's important for the founder to, to really be careful uh, to what they're signaling uh, and, and actually not appear too desperate, uh, as you put it, to just get capital for capital's sake. Like, like why do you need it and what are you really going to use it for? Uh, is it worth the trade you're making? Because you are losing equity among other things. And so... Uh, definitely helped me sort of understand those uh, principles in a more fundamental way. And, uh, and I'm happy to always kind of share that same insight. Um, you know, a lot of companies come in that uh, still haven't even figured out the equity split among the team. Yeah. yeah. You know, somebody is putting in a lot of work and effort and they have the least equity ownership and we go, but why? Mm-hmm. Why aren't you negotiating for more? Why aren't you valued as part of a team? And know. Uh, uh, you know, until you fix that house from the inside, it's going to be very hard to put on a uh, sort of a strong front and negotiate jointly with the investor who's, by the way, coming in to take as much as he can from you. Uh, so you better trust each other and, and, and be able to negotiate as a team uh, if you're going to do this fundraising thing. And so there's a lot of lessons there that can be learned around uh, just assessing the internal value. Uh, which could be from talent, it could be IP, it could be actual revenue, as we talked about customers and, and partnerships, that a lot of that inventory has to be done so that the investor is not telling you what's valuable and what's not. Like you have to be able to communicate that yourself as well. Yeah, I love it. So listen, we've obviously spent most of our time on the deal aspects of what you do, because that's what this podcast is about. Sure. We don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to, you know, you we mentioned uh, some of the books and other things you're involved with on this whole concept of cashless society. I did sure. want to get, and I know we could spend hours on that topic, but I, but, but it, <laughs> to be continued, it, right? It, you know, but in a few minutes, if you can, in a few minutes, just talk to us about sure. you know, sort of your passion about that and what you see, and you know, uh, you know, what just what your own involvement in that conversation. Yeah, so so I I actually like uh, cashless society. Turns out it has been a concept. It's nothing new. It's been around since the 60s or at least even earlier than that. Essentially, I look it up, like your dictionary definition of it, a Webster dictionary definition would be like a, a society that now, you know, prefers 
a majority of its transactions to be handled electronically. Yes. Keyword electronic or digital. Uh, that means you're getting your Uber delivery, your you know, flight ticket online and yada, yada, yada. Um, and so for me, I, I then took it as a challenge, I think pre, almost pre-COVID, like 2020, it's like, can I survive a year without using cash? Okay, had to do in New York, some, some businesses, you know, Chinatown and other places, yeah, yeah. you still gotta be cash only. Um, and it turns out it's possible. And lucky enough, thanks to COVID or maybe the MTA already had these plans, the subway system in New York City now is all electronic. So you can just pay with your debit card among other phone payments. So I think what we've seen in summary is a over a 30% jump or increase in digital transactions or, or payments um, it, thanks to COVID. Uh, but this is here to stay. So businesses are being pushed that way. Uh, and I generally believe that, you know, this is my closing statement, if anything, the fear that I had about being like a business owner during COVID was almost invalidated when I realized that as long as you're involved in tech, you're going to be okay. You know, yeah. like businesses that survived had something to do with technology, either from a payments, retail, e-commerce, and all these other areas. So um, the one, you know, advice I can leave with anybody in any industry is digitize and save costs because anytime you digitize, you're cutting out a lot of costs. And, and I think that that was just a, a sort of a, a good sort of outcome out of this challenging, challenging period uh, to see the advantages of automation and digitization firsthand. And uh, it couldn't have come at a better time. And I think a lot of people are beginning to see that. So that's cashless society in a nutshell. Yeah, no, no question. Uh, so listen, obviously we didn't, you know, I mean, you did that as much justice as you could in the, in the time I gave you. Uh, <laughs> I but, but if people want to find out, I know you have some books on that. If people want to find out more about that or more about your core business or what are the places sure. they should go to find out more about everything you're involved in? Yeah, so I'm I'm online. I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, but the, I really, the main place to start is just uh, my our website, brianasinger.com, B-R-I-A-N-A-S-I-N-G-I-A. And the social handle goes by the same name. So uh, the, the books, I believe the ebook is available for free on the website for a limited time. So people can get that. Uh, and I've, I've been intentionally delaying the, the print launch, uh, maybe to the summer or fall, just so I can have more time to actually do in-person events. So, uh, but I appreciate this opportunity and, and I'm sure we'll have more conversations in the, in, in the near future. So thanks for having me. No, it's great to have you on. I got a final question for you, Brian, before you go. Sure. And that is um, that I always ask on the podcast. And that is for me, my highest value in life is freedom. And for me, mm-hmm. that means everything from freedom from all people around the world from oppression to the reason I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in decades. Um, what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Wow, freedom. Um, I think freedom to me means uh, more than anything, freedom of thought. Mm. not even expression yes. like I, I don't like to be told what to think it can be advised but uh, my mind works its thing and I, I, I genuinely believe that each person's mind is unique uh, mm. and so they are welcome to think and perhaps analyze the world in whatever way they see fit uh, and that's, that's freedom to me now the beauty with that is you can then express that, those thoughts and those ideas into different ways and, 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 and business and writing and 
I love jazz and all these other venues are how I sort of uh, express that freedom. So I appreciate that, that question. Love it. Ryan Asinja, thank you so much for being a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thank you, Corey. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.